Welcome to Greensburg Baptist Church. We welcome our church family and also our visiting friends. Thank you for coming to worship with us. To find out more about Greensburg Baptist Church, our upcoming events, and other church activities, visit our website anytime at greensburgbaptist.com. As a, as a kiddo, I was not a fan of funeral homes. Um, they could not convince me that the smell that weirded me out so much was the flowers. Um, and so it was just anything I could do to stay out of the funeral home. If we had to go in, I was in and out as quick as possible. Um, I just wasn't a fan of them. And for me, I, I guess in life, kind of like my relationship with death was kind of like a storm. Like sometimes you would see it coming and it would land on your life, but more usually, right, it wasn't someone super close or you just kind of experienced it kind of at a distance and you saw the folks and the storm moved on past and you journeyed on with life. And it wasn't until my dad died that um, for me death began to look different, that I probably wouldn't define death for me in that moment as a storm. It felt more like a natural disaster. Like the storm comes and goes and everybody else moseys on back to life, but you're left with all these pieces, and you walk out day after day, and it's just like, man, stuff's just strewn in your yard. And you're like, what do we do with this? Like, how do we handle this moment? And my assumption is is that most of you, if you've lived long enough in life, you've experienced the sting of death. And I don't know if it's been like a storm that's kind of just you've seen it from afar, and it's not come real close to you, and it kind of comes for a season, and that storm kind of passes on, or maybe you've encountered it in a way that I can't even begin to imagine, something much deeper than what I've ever experienced in death. And you're still here experiencing that natural disaster or however you might define it. It just seems to rage over your life and often to hold you captive. And that's what's so beautiful today as we come to Isaiah 25 and 26. Is that finally someone is going to step in and remove the blanket, the veil that is over all of us. This reign of death is going to come to an end. And the people of God are going to be so moved that the one thing that they can respond and say is simply this. Behold our God. Behold, who else is like this God who could step in and overcome this great enemy of death? Behold our God. Who is it like this that could rescue us from this fear of what we have, of the unknown, of crossing over from death and facing eternity. And so it is, as we return to the 25th chapter of the prophet Isaiah, and we hear that, behold our God, He has defeated death. Begins in verse 1, as the prophet writes, he says, O Lord, You are my God, I will exalt You, I will praise Your name Why? He says, for you have done wonderful things. Some translations render it marvelous. It indicates some supernatural work of God. That God has done something that no church, no government, no man, no woman, no one else could do. Only God could do it. He says, it is a wonderful thing that you have done. And notice also, look what he says here. He calls it faithful. Hold that thought for a moment. 
It's interesting, the text further records, for you have made the city a heap there in verse 2. The fortified city a ruin. The palaces have become no more. The strongest of the world have been thrown down. And, and if you remember, you've been with us, right? I mean, in Isaiah 23, we heard about this Tyree, this prostitute who represented the nations and all of our commerce. And in a moment, it was gone. And then we landed in Isaiah 24 and we saw the imagery and we heard the imagery of, the, of Noah's flood and that there's some type of judgment that's going to come again upon the earth that's going to be totality. Uh, it's going to be cataclysmic, holistic in judgment. And so Isaiah 25 opens and it's as if the people of God have walked through and they're, they're looking and seeing the world in ruin and destruction And they realize that their God has been faithful. You see, one of the misnomers and one of the confusing things about life is the moments when God does not take away the storm. But yet He keeps you in the midst of the storm. That there is a God who is faithful in the midst of the storms of you and my life. There's a God who has been faithful to His people in the midst of worldwide judgment when even the strongest did not survive. They declare in verse 4, For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in His distress. The people of God have come to a place of realizing that when they are weak, God is strong. And then news happens that becomes... Isaiah 25 and 26 is some of the most important and pivotal texts we have in all of Scripture. You're going to encounter today about the truth of resurrection, about hope beyond this life, of what is there beyond death and the grave. Can God overcome it? So let's listen in as we come. In verse 6, the prophet says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast. Of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. The prophet is writing about something that is yet future, that is to come in, in the coming generations. He's looking down the horizon, the corridor of time, and seeing something that's coming at the end of time. And what's important or pivotal about this is, is the connection back to Exodus 24. You see the text on the screen. We're going to cover it in just a moment. But in Exodus 24, we have this moment, right? Exodus 20, you have the Ten Commandments and the sealing or the sign of this covenant. And so God gives the Ten Commandments to Moses and the people. And then now the people are going to go up the mountain and they're going to worship. And guess what? All the people can't come. There's only 70 of the elder, elders. They represent the people. And they're going to go up and have this celebration, this time of confirming this covenant with God. And look what it says. Look at the connections here. This is pretty interesting. Again, on this mountain, verse 6 of Isaiah 25, the Lord of hosts will make for, look what he says here, all what? All people. Now watch this, the difference. Then he said to Moses, Exodus 24, verse 1, then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. So only 70 go is representing the people. But in this day, when this feast comes, all people will be invited. Notice also there the indication that it is indeed a feast. We're going to pull from that more in a moment. But watch how the text continues. These folks are going to worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near. And the people shall not come with him. This is going to be at a distance. They're worshiping God at a distance. But what is coming in the future is something different. 
In verse 8, it's going to tell us that this God is going to come so close to you and I that He's going to be able to wipe away every tear from our eyes. Every tear. So these people are worshiping at a distance, but this one that is coming is going to wipe away every tear from His eye. Look further with me, verse 9. It says that they go up the mountain, and verse 10 of Exodus 24 records, and they saw the God of Israel. This is interesting. They saw the God of Israel. We're going to hear in a moment, verse 11, they beheld God. But it's interesting. Look how it notes about this scene of God. There was under his feet. The imagery is of what they see is so it's it's not fully. They don't see God fully. Why? Because Exodus 33 and 20 reminds us that no one may see God in what? And live, right? I mean, if you were to see the, un, the God who lives in unapproachable light, as First Timothy 6 tells us, whom no one has seen or can see, to Him be glory and praise forever. Right? If you were to see this God, it would literally, it would strike you dead. That's why Isaiah, when he has that vision, Isaiah 6, he says, woe is me, I'm ruined. He's seen the Lord of glory. So when we see this happening here, whatever they're seeing, it's an indication that they're not seen fully. But Revelation 22, 3 and 4 says there will come a day for the people of God when they will see God face to face. Something greater is coming. And again, it notice that again, we hear about the fact that there's a feast coming. Well, look what happens here in verse 11 of Exodus 24. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. So this is again connecting back to this covenant, but it's telling the people of God something greater is coming. Something that only the elders got to do. Something that Moses was able to do. I want you to know that when God comes, when He ransoms us ultimately in Christ, He is going to make you so clean that you can stand before a holy and perfect God, stand face to face. This is the hope of the gospel. And we might ask, well, what events are surrounding this? Like, how might we begin to know that this is coming? Isaiah answers that further. Look at me if you would. Beginning in verse 7 of Isaiah 25. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people. The veil that is spread over all nations. The question is, well, what's over all people? What veil is over all nations? Look what it says here, verse 8. He will swallow up what? Death. And notice he says here it's forever. When I was little, my uncle used to challenge me at games of basketball in the basement. I'm saying little, probably like five, six, something like that. And when I would go to check the ball up, we had this little goal we were playing on. And when I go to check the ball up, he would start to dribble around. And then he would reach over and usually he would grab a blanket. And what he would do is he'd dribble just for a moment. He'd take the blanket and he would throw it over my head. And as I was fighting, trying to get out from underneath this blanket, he would run in and score, right? Everybody needs an uncle like that. Some of you are those kind of uncles or aunts, right? There's a blanket over all of us that we can't escape on our own. It's death. Now, you may have made some attempt this morning in the mirror to cover it up, but it's coming. And Isaiah says it's over everybody. Right? I mean, we we know Paul, Romans 6 and 23, for the wages of sin is what? Death. That's the payment you and I deserve for death. And in the midst of this, we see this God who will swallow up death forever. This God who is going to step in to life, into mortality, to take on flesh. The Son of God is going to come and live a sinless life, be crucified on the cross. But on the third day, by the power of God, He's going to be raised again, transformed unto life. 
He says, listen, I want you to know this is going to come about. A God who is going to overcome your greatest enemy and fear, death. The question might be, well, when will God do that? And Paul answers that for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is writing about this resurrection that is to come, this new life. And he says in verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, he's talking about you and I receiving a resurrected body and the mortal puts on immortality. Look what he says here. It's interesting. Then shall come to pass what the saying that is written and notice what the saying is. Death is what death is swallowed up. That's what you just heard right back here. He will swallow up, right? Death forever. He's going to swallow it up there in verse 7. That's exactly Paul saying, listen, this statement that Isaiah made here in Isaiah 25 and 8 is going to actually happen. There's going to come a day when death is going to be defeated once and for all. And you're asking when. Look back with me, would. Verse 52. Just rewind just a few verses. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52. In a moment. In the twinkling of an eye. At the last trumpet for this trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed it was on the screen earlier but first thessalonians 4 and 16 says that when the last trumpet is blown jesus christ will descend from his heavenly rule and reign and it says the dead in christ will be raised up out of their graves and for thus that are alive who are in christ we too will rise to meet them in the air and it says and so we will be with the lord forever paul says this saying of isaiah of death being swallowed up will come and the one who will bring it about is jesus do you know him the question might be well why is this all even happening isaiah look what he says Verse 9, it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him. Why? That. Look what it says there. That he might what? Save us. That God delights in saving you. Not that you would die and be separated from him forever. God delights in saving you and rescuing you. God does not will that you should spend eternity separated from Him. So He sent forth His only Son. For God so loved the what? The world. And that's you. That He sent His only begotten Son. That whoever shall believe in Him shall not what? But have what? Everlasting life. God delights in saving you and me. And what will be our response? So it's right there in verse 9. Behold our God. Behold our God who could overcome death. Behold our God who could defeat what lies before us for what many of you have faced with those that you love this morning. When I shared about that, you know it all too well. It has the face of a child. It has the face of a parent, the face of a brother or sister. It's your grandma, your grandpa. That's your spouse. You see that face. You know the long darkness of night. And there is a God who is coming to overcome it. And the response of the people of God is, Behold our God. But this God has not only defeated death. This God, according to Isaiah 26, has defeated our rebellion. Behold our God. He has defeated our rebellion. In verse 10 of Isaiah 26, 
He makes a statement. If favor is shown, some translations render it grace. If grace is shown, look what it says here, the wicked. Watch what happens. The wicked do not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he deals corruptly and he does not see the majesty of the Lord. Further, verse 11. Oh, Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not what? They don't see it. And the question we have to ask is, and then who does see it? Or why does anyone see it? Or why have I seen the majesty of the Lord? Why can't I convince my coworker or my friend? Why can't I cause them to see it? Look what happens here in the text. Just rewind it a little bit back here in Isaiah 26. Again, this God who's defeated our rebellion. Look at, listen in to verse 7 of Isaiah 26. The path of the righteous is what? level you make level the way of the righteous further in the path of your judgments O lord we notice what they said they're going to do they're going to wait for you your name and remembrance are again elke says here the desire of our soul my soul yearns for you in the night my spirit within me notice what he says here earnestly seeks you now, how do we get from a place of hearing about this favor or kindness and yet not learning, not seeing, not seeing, and now we hear about the path of the righteous, that it's level, they wait for you, it's the desire of their soul, their soul yearns, they earnestly seek for God, right? How does someone come to that place? And listen to the text answers for us. Verse 12 of Isaiah 26. O Lord, you will ordain peace for us. Peace not only with the nations, ultimately peace with God the Father. Romans 5 is in your mind. Hearing about peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You're hearing that. You're feeling that. Oh Lord you will ordain peace for us. Why? For. Look what he says there. For you have indeed done. Right? So God has done something. Look what he says here. For us. All our works. God has done a work. God has done a work to rescue you and I that we no longer desire the things of the world and yet we desire to see Christ. We desire to seek Him. That our soul yearns for Him. That I earnestly desire Him. That I want to walk on a level path. How does that happen? Isaiah says it's a work of God. Listen to Paul, how he defines it here just for a moment. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. So how is salvation true and genuine? Paul is helping you and I see. How do we know that we are truly a part of the people of God? That's what he says here, beginning in verse 5 of 1 Thessalonians 1. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Most of those things. There's power, there's the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. Now, I think Paul is writing twofold. I think one, he's speaking about the work of the preacher. That there is in that moment a work of power in the preacher as he proclaims the gospel. There's something about the Spirit moving. Now, in Paul and other apostles, there was some apostolic work, signs, wonders, miracles. But there was also conviction upon the part of the preacher. They were convinced that the Word of God, that the hope of Christ is the only hope for anyone to be saved. But beloved, there's also a work in the heart and mind of the one listening. As the Spirit begins to open our eyes, we begin to see and hear this truth, this amazing grace that God would love and rescue a sinner like you and me. There's a full conviction that this Word is true, that I need Christ, that I must call out to Him for salvation. Look further. Look how He defines it. 
verse 6 of 1 Thessalonians 1. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Notice what he says about them. They received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Further, look at this again, this evidence of genuine salvation. So that you became an example, their lives were changed. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, he says your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. Further, look at me. Beginning in verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you, listen to what their lives are defined as. You turn to God from what? From idols. To do what? To serve the living and true God and to wait for a son from heaven. There's a turning in your life, as you hear this gospel, you hear that a God came to rescue you from death, to overcome your sin and rebellion. There's a desire within to no longer live the way you're living, but to turn, right, to fix my eyes upon Jesus, to look full at His wonderful face, and then the things of earth will grow strangely, what? Dim in the light of His glory and grace. There's something about that amazing grace. It should transform us. This work of salvation in us, brothers and sisters, it is a true transformation work. As I had a conversation with a gentleman this week, we were just talking about what does it mean to truly be a new creation? What does it mean that the old is gone and the new has come? Where does this leave us, though? Well, again, we're hearing the statements in Isaiah 25 and and echoes of it in Isaiah 26 about the marriage supper of the Lamb. And look at me, you would, just for a moment. Revelation 19. John records about when this actually will happen. Listen to what he says here. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come. He's going to call it further in verse nine. He calls it the marriage supper of the lamb. Notice two things specifically here. One, he says this, the bride, which represents who? The church, right? The church, the bride has done something. She is what? Made herself ready. The bride has made herself ready. Secondly, look at this. It was, the text records, granted her to clothe herself. The text seems to be in opposition. How could the bride make herself ready at the same time it be granted to her? And I think it's a reminder of the work of God's grace that God is working, saving us. That There's nothing in us that we could ever do to save ourselves. And yet at the same time, this work in us will manifest or create in us a new creation, a desire for good works, a desire to live a righteous and holy life, a desire to forgive those who have offended and hurt us. The grace and mercy of God should transform us. And I think maybe the question we all need to ask at this point is, is, Am I invited? Listen to this. Verse 9 of Revelation 19. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are what? Invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's in Luke 14 and Jesus is having a discourse with a gentleman. They're just having this dialogue about, about eternal life and the life to come. And this gentleman finally makes this statement in the midst of this resurrection talk. He says, Blessed are those who eat bread in the kingdom of come, right? He's, he's looking at Isaiah 25. He's, he's talking about this marriage supper that's to come. He's saying, listen, blessed is anyone who makes it there. And then Jesus says this statement. He says, I want to tell you a story. He says there was a master of a house and he was going to have a great banquet. And 
Guess what? He sent out his servant, said, go out and invite them. And he said, the time has come. And so tell them the time is ready for the marriage supper to happen. The wedding's here. And he says, when they went out, guess what? Everybody began to do is make excuses. Some people had just gotten married. And so they were doing what married couples do when they get married. They were too busy for it. There was others who said, guess what? I have too much cattle. I got to worry about my farm, my lamb, my ox and everything else. And we can't come either. And it says the master of the house was furious. And he said, go out now and invite the blind, the crippled, the poor and the lame. And he said, master, that's already been done. And listen to the statement. And there is still room. And Jesus says, then go out to the highways and what? And hedges. And compel them to come in that my house may be full. Jesus says there's still room for you. Would you come to Christ? There's still room. Master, there's still room. He says then go out church. And compel them to come in. Go to your jobs. Go to your schools. Go to your family. Compel them to come in. There's still time. The invitation is still extended. Come to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I think it leaves us with three applications in closing. Number one, when we behold our God and His victory over death, it leads to perpetual praise. You heard it there in verse 1. Right? That there was an exaltation of God. There was a praising of God. Look further with me. Verse 9. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation further. Isaiah 26 and 19 says, Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and what? Sing for what? Sing for joy. I want to challenge you. That if you've beheld your God, the one that's rescued you from death and your rebellion and sin. Are you singing? This morning, were you singing? I've shared it before, but one of the greatest impacts upon my faith as a young man, as a child, is being in church and hearing my dad sing. My dad didn't have the best of voice. Didn't. All right. You heard me sing. I kind of follow him, right? It's kind of right. And this one made it so maybe so more so much more impactful. Is that knowing that he didn't have the best voice, that he wasn't ashamed, and as a child I would be quiet and listen, and the vast majority of voices I heard, I want to tell you, they were female voices. I want to challenge the men in this congregation here. If you have beheld the God who has rescued you from death and eternal separation from Christ, is there not a desire to sing and worship him? And stop with our excuses. I can't sing. I don't like the music. If it's truly worshiping and exalting the Son of God, stop with those excuses. Think what the impact you're having upon the children around you, on the other men around you, upon your wives. There ought to be a desire for perpetual praise because of what He's done, not because of how good of a singer I am. There is a desire for perpetual praise for those who have beheld their God. And I am a reminder, it is not about how well you sing. All glory be to Christ. If I had the greatest voice, it would never ever be worthy of Him anyway. Secondly, 
when we behold our God and his victory over death, it leads to perfect peace. Man, this is some good news getting ready to come. So open your bucket or purse or whatever. You just need to pile this in. This is is unbelievable this week, these last two things. This is what it says again in verse 8 of Isaiah 25. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God, listen to what it says he will do. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. We must land here if we are to have perfect peace. Why? Because the reality is in moments of hardships in life, it does not feel like, it does not feel like, it does not feel like God is near or that he cares or that he's watching. And then this intimate moment is going to come in eternity when God is going to say, I saw your hardship. I saw your brokenness. I heard your tears in the night when your spouse thought you were asleep and the tears ran down your face. I saw the heartache that you carried for that child that you lost all those years ago. I want you to know that I love you. I've not forgotten that. This God of intimacy is there loving us caring for us, taking away the reproach of His people. And look what it does. Look what it does in verse 20, or verse 3 of Isaiah 26. You keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you, whose mind is steadfast on you, whose mind is set on you. But listen, that's hard, isn't it? Any of you as kiddos ever play King of the Hill? Right, like where you had like this big, like at the park when I grew up, we had this big massive like these dirt mounds. And so what we would do is, like, whoever could get to the hill fast enough, you get up there and declare that you're king, and then you welcome all rivals, right? And then people are, like, kidney punching, throwing dirt clods. I mean, it was crazy. But you're trying to fight off everything, right? It's kind of like that in life, isn't it? We're trying to keep our mind focused upon Christ. We're trying to stay steadfast on Him, this hope that we have. But then life collides with that. Somebody pulls you out in traffic, or your spouse says something, or does something you thought they should have, or shouldn't have maybe said, or... You asked your kids 15 times ago to pick up their room or you left the trash out and the dog tore it everywhere. I'm not, I don't know these people. I'm just talking about somebody out there, right? Can't imagine this ever happening in anybody's house. It's this moment of trying to stay up there, of living and honoring God. It's so hard. And that's why I want to encourage you with two specific things. Look back at the text with me. Verse 3 of Isaiah 26. You keep, you keep him in perfect peace. We're not doing it alone. This is not the strongest you. This is the power of Christ in you. This is the spirit at work in us that a moment that moment happens or our spouse says something, our kids disobey or your parents tick you off or you want to smart back off to that buddy or friend. Guess that that coworker, the spirit says, no, that is not you in Christ. Show forgiveness, show kindness. You've been bitter to that person. You've been turning your back to them. I want you to go and show them love. You see how the spirit collides. To keep us in perfect peace whose mind has stayed on you. Why? Look what it says here. Because why? Because why? He trusts in you. He trusts in you. To stay in perfect peace, we have to trust or have faith in God even when we can't see it. When I walk up to the tombstone that says, Kimball Jesse, I have to have faith and trust that there's a God who's still good. I'll be straight with you. When I see some of you grandfathers playing with your grandchildren, I have bitterness in my soul. When it's grandparents' day at school and I realize my dad won't be there, there's sometimes bitterness in my soul. 
And again, some of you have so much great heartache way beyond what I've experienced. It's just me personally. And in those moments, if God is to keep me in perfect peace, I have to be reminded, I have to trust in Him that there is eternity coming. There is never-ending coming. There is a moment coming with God that will surpass anything I could have experienced in this life. And I must hope in that even when I cannot see it with my own eyes or experience it here and now. We must fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is what? Unseen. For what is seen, he says, is indeed temporary. But what is unseen is what? Eternal. Thirdly and last, when we behold our God and His victory over death, it leads to permanent prosperity. This right here is going to send you out, I hope, whistling whatever song you like to whistle, as long as it's appropriate, right? You're dead, verse 19 of Isaiah 26, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. So the dead are going to live, the bodies of those in the ground are going to rise, you who are in the dust, those that you buried in the grave are going to awake and sing for joy. Death is not the end. There is a physical resurrection coming. There is going to be a real marriage supper. It's going to be in a real place with real people. It's going to be a real physical meal. And it's going to be celebrated with real resurrected bodies. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 3, 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like what? His glorious body. How? He says it's by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Can you imagine that you'll have a body that will never hurt again? You'll never hear the cries of anyone ever again. Your eyes will never struggle. There'll be no more need of hearing aids or glasses. There'll be no need of walkers. There'll be no need of that long list of prescription medicines some of you deal with day after day. There'll be no need of that. Why? Because Christ will be all and in all and He will finally once and for all overcome death and our sin by the power of His glorious death and resurrection. And you and I, beloved, will experience permanent prosperity. That's true prosperity. That's the prosperity gospel right there. It is eternal life with God forever and ever. Does this not move us to take the gospel to Kenya? Is this not worthy of us leaving to go to Zimbabwe? Is this not worthy of you going to Oklahoma or Changers? That there are many out there who do not know. Is this not worthy of you sacrificing tomorrow on your job? There are many who do not know this truth. And they will experience death separated from God forever. And God has sent you and placed you right where you are in that family, at that job, at that school, at that around that table with all the boys or all the girls. That you would take and share the hope of the gospel with him. I know several of us are fanning this morning. It's a little warm. Can we imagine the hell, the weeping, the gnashing of teeth? Beloved, this is the hope. Of the gospel. That there's going to come a God who has seen your hurts and heartaches. Sees our sinful rebellion and yet in love sent forth his son to rescue us. 
That whoever believes in Him will not die permanently, but will be raised or will rise in the air to meet Him to live forever and ever. This must remind us that when you and I see the caskets, when we see the tombstones, we must look in hope and faith and look above and say, this is not the end! Because behold our God. He has defeated death. And there is an eternal resurrection coming for those who are in Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray today that you would just you would give us hope that we would desire the things of God in this place. None of us here are worthy enough. We can't change our path by ourselves. We look only to you. And God, you delight in faith. It is a gracious free gift that you would give us eternal life. Those who repent and believe on the name of Jesus. Father, I pray now for the excuses in our minds of why we couldn't sing or why there's no way for us to ever have peace or we could never have joy in this life because of what we've experienced or gone through. I pray now, God, that Your hope, the good news, the Gospel today that's come through the lips of the prophet Isaiah, God, I pray that it would just fill our hearts, it would flood our minds, and that You would move us to action. You would move us to faith in the midst of storms. You would move us to hope even when it seems hopeless and we can't see the light. Help us, God. Thank you that you are our God. I love you, Lord. Blessed be your name forever and ever. Amen. Maybe three specific challenges, right? Are you singing? Like for real, singing. This is Todd Young with Greensburg Baptist Church. Thank you for joining us today. If you've accepted Christ during today's podcast, we would love to hear from you and connect you with a home church in your area. Or if you have questions regarding a relationship with Christ, Brother Blake and I would love to speak with you. Please contact us at the church office at 270-932-4495 or connect with us through our website at greensburgbaptist.com. In addition, you may visit our website anytime to access the sermon videos and podcast of any recent sermon. You may also subscribe to our podcast in the iTunes store. Have a great day today.